Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. A little housekeeping here. First, I just had my town hall event for subscribers. That was a very interesting experiment. Unfortunately, I had a migraine for it, which was a bit of bad luck. But other than that, I'm happy to say that I think we nailed the look of the thing. The whole thing was staged and directed by Stephen Brill. And I think it really is the best looking live stream I've ever seen. So the look has been achieved. Now I just need to tinker with the format. But uh, we will definitely run this experiment again because I think it looks promising. And I will let you all know when that will happen. Many thanks to Stephen and his team for doing a more professional job than I could have imagined possible. And many thanks to my friend Eric Weinstein for joining me on stage. Let's see what else here. I was just on Kara Swisher's podcast, Recode, which is produced by Vox Media. That was fascinating. As you might recall, Kara and I collided on Twitter a little bit, and then we wound up doing a podcast to explore and process our differences. In my world, that was fine. In her world, it seems to have been quite controversial. She was immediately deluged with criticism for having platformed me. Many of her fans just began shrieking their unwillingness to even listen to our conversation. All I can say is the response demonstrated the truth of my claim that the kinds of smears I've been complaining about actually work. At one point, I told Kara that the effect of Ezra Klein's articles in Vox about my conversation with Charles Murray were to paint me as a racist, and she seemed to doubt that. But when you look at the response of the Vox Recode audience, you need no further evidence on that point. Much of her audience responded as though she hit Richard Spencer on the podcast. So it's quite insane out there, and I must say I'm happy to be spending much less time even looking at social media. Thank you, Kara, for being willing to have a conversation. I enjoyed hanging with you, and hopefully the smart subset of your audience will understand what happened there. I'm very happy to say that my wife, Annika, has her first book for grown-ups coming out. It is called Conscious, A Brief Guide to the Fundamental Mystery of the Mind. And it's coming out early next month. June 4th is the pub date, but it is available for pre-order now on Amazon and elsewhere. And I won't flog it too hard here, but It really is a beautiful analysis of what is so fascinating about the mystery of consciousness. And I must say, she has better endorsements on this book than I have ever gotten for any of my books. I'll read you a couple here. Adam Grant says, Conscious offers the clearest, most compelling explanation I've ever seen of consciousness. Max Tegmark says, In this gem of a book, Annika Harris tackles consciousness controversies with incisive rigor and clarity in a style that's accessible and captivating, yet never dumbed down. Adam Frank, the astrophysicist, says, a remarkably focused, concise, and provocative overview of the problem of mind. Marco Iacoboni, neuroscientist, says, I have read many, many great books on consciousness in my life as a neuroscientist. Conscious tops them all, hands down. It deals with unsolved questions and dizzying concepts with a graciousness and clarity that leaves the reader deeply satisfied. Anyway, she has many other blurbs here from Sean Carroll and Gavin DeBecker, Natalia Holt, Christoph Koch, 
Tim Urban. Maybe I'll just read the one from Natalia Holt here to close out. Natalia wrote the New York Times bestseller Rise of the Rocket Girls. Harris holds a mirror up to ourselves, and the reflection she casts is wondrously unfamiliar. In salient prose that intertwines science and philosophy, Harris turns her joyful curiosity on the nature of awareness. Every sentence of this book works upon the next, delving the reader deeper into an exploration of consciousness. While most books that contemplate the mysteries of the universe make one feel small in comparison, conscious gives the reader an undeniable sense of presence. Anyway, I am very proud of her, as perhaps you can tell, and I am looking forward to seeing the book out in the world. What else here? The Waking Up app. We are still adding new content and new features, and we are now reaching out to businesses. So enterprise partnerships are now available. If you're interested in exploring that, please send an email to enterprise at wakingup.com. And please keep the reviews coming in the App Store. Those are extremely helpful. And send all bug reports to support at wakingup.com. Occasionally, an update will break something. The best way for us to fix that quickly is to hear from you all. So, thank you for the continuing feedback. And now for today's podcast. Today I'm speaking with Nicholas Christakis. Nicholas has been on the podcast before, but that was before he had his new book, Blueprint, The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society. This is a scientific look at all that is right with us as social primates and creators of culture, and it's a fascinating story. We get into much of it here, though we digress. It's always great to speak with Nicholas. He has a wonderful laugh, as you'll hear. Nicholas Christakis is a physician and sociologist who explores the ancient origins and modern implications of human nature. He directs the Human Nature Lab at Yale University, where he's the Sterling Professor of Social and Natural Science in the Departments of Sociology, Medicine, Ecology and Evolutionary Biology, Statistics and Data Science, and Biomedical Engineering. He is the coordinator of the Yale Institute of Network Science and the co-author of Connected. And now I bring you Nicholas Christakis. I am here with Nicholas Christakis. Nicholas, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Oh, Sam, thank you so much for having me. So as you are a returning champion, I don't need to introduce you at especially great length. You know, last time we spoke about your adventures in the quad at Yale, which was the controversy that brought you into prominence outside of science in on culture war issues. We're going to talk a lot about culture, and, and so I'm sure we'll wind up stumbling onto these controversies from another angle. But uh, I'll just remind people that you were the the long-suffering professor standing in the quad at Yale being hectored by a mob of students. And uh, you're, if I recall, not so keen to dredge much out of that episode. But the reason for our discussion today is you've written a fascinating book titled Blueprint, which is a um, I mean, I'll, I'll let you introduce your purpose in writing this book, but it's it's really interesting social science that uh, we'll be talking about. Yeah, I mean, um, it's, it's sort of ironic to me a little bit. I knew when the book was published and that I, you know, would would be speaking about it, that it would be unavoidable that questions would come up or people would mention the experience I had at Yale in 2015. And I, I was really dreading it. 
because it's something I want to leave behind me. I, I, I had this very good fortune of uh, Frank Rooney interviewing me and um, he very kindly sort of framed our experience, honestly. And, and I think that allowed me to really put it behind me. I mean, I told him that this was not even one of the 10 worst things that's, it was in the, it was in the 10 worst things that's happened to me in my life, but not the worst thing. And, you know, we did our best in challenging circumstances and are happy to leave it behind us. It, it does, it, it was interesting to me though, I'll say a couple of things. One is that I had begun this book about 10 years ago. And if anything, the events of that year delayed me, my completing the book by a year or two, but actually increased my interest in writing it because of a number of reasons. First of all, I am committed to the claim that human beings are fundamentally good. And I'm sure we'll be talking about that. But also mm. because in the, in the courtyard that day, some of the things that I had studied for so long and had been thinking about for so long were so manifest. For instance, the, the way in which people can de-individuate, which is a quality we have evolved for good reasons, that is to say, to suspend our own personal interests in order to advance the interests of a group, to lose our sense of personal identity and, and sort of fuse with a group. But when carried to an extreme, you get things like mobs and you know uh, witch trials and all kinds of other horrors. And, and the challenge in that type of a circumstance is to cultivate in, or you, you, know, you get the kind of us versus them mentality that Brooks knows shared understanding. And the challenge in that type of a circumstance is to get people to see themselves as individuals, uh, not as members of a group. And I, I remember in the courtyard that day, as I watched the students de-individuate and, and suspend their own identity, and I remember thinking to myself, I have to get them to see me as a person, and I have to get them to see that I see them as individuals, not as members of some class of people. And that's why I started asking them to introduce themselves. I said, hi, I'm Nicholas. You know, what's your name? And that was rather, rather deliberate, actually, on my part. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's good manners, but it was also rather deliberate. Anyway, so there's some connection, but not a great one between those events and the ideas in the book. Yeah, well, I, there, I think there's a lot in the sense that I mean, you, you just flagged one where, you know, so much that is good about us, or at least uh, has been necessary to our success in the past, is also bad about us in, in a modern context, at least potentially so. So, you know, it's pretty hard to see how, in most circumstances, de-individuating is a desirable psychological trait, except, you know, as you point out, it's immensely energizing and canceling of friction. It's a great aid to cooperation. I mean, what, you know, a mob, if nothing else, is um, cooperating mm. toward a common purpose. And, you know, so much of the fragmentation of our society, I mean, one could attribute it to some degree to both capacities we have. We have a kind of radical individualism where everyone seems to feel that they need an opinion on everything. Everyone is an expert, at least potentially so, and this is being amplified by social media, but then it's giving us these cascades of mob-like behavior, uh, which is, you know, I would argue not just staying on social media, but surging out into the real world when I saw what you what you were experiencing at Yale and which what I've seen on other campuses and 
in the tech community in particular, it's this kind of moral panic is not just staying on campuses. It does seem like an expression, or at least it seems plausible to suspect that this is a a real world expression of a phenomenon that's mostly happening on social media. At least it's being energized by what's happening on social media. I, it's just where where are people getting their their information and their attitudes and their convictions that, you know, in this case, in the local circumstance you experienced, that Yale is a theater of intolerable oppression. Right. Well, okay. So you've you've identified like five different topics as far as yeah, I'm yeah. concerned. One, Good luck with that. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> one of them one of them has to do with a kind of spread of disbelief, uh, not disbelief, the spread of false beliefs and why people will willingly believe things which are false. Now, I, I know you've thought a lot about this and talked a lot about it, and that itself is an interesting topic. And actually, paradoxically, the willing embrace of something manifestly false is precisely often how one demonstrates belonging in a group, right? Mm-hmm. So the the you know the belief that uh, you know that um, in religious beliefs, many religious beliefs have this character where you're called upon to believe things which clearly are not true, and and that's a signal that you are a member of of this group, and that you have a certain kind of faith, for instance. But you also highlighted a number of other features, one of which I'd like to go back to. Which Although is, I, I do want to now, now I risk d- diverting you. A fatally, diversion but, on a diversion, Sam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, I really, I want to flag that point because that, that's such a good one. And I notice it in other contexts. I mean, so much of the support for Trump that I find impossible to get my mind around in that, you know, people will apparently believe the unbelievable or accept yes. the obvious contempt for truth that comes at great cost. It is a kind of loyalty test. It really yes. is just, it, it, is, it is an in-group signal, which, yes. you know, if you're not in the group, seems totally perverse. Yes, I think that's all right. And I also think there's another thread, we can come to that, and there's another thread that relates to the way in which, you know, the book, the subtitle of the book is The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society. There's a way in which natural selection has shaped our social interaction style, for example, the structure of our social networks, which I talk about, so as to optimize the flow of useful information. So Mm. if you you think about it, in in the extreme case, you might have a case in which nobody interacts with anybody. That's called a null set in a network. There are no connections. There's no spread of information there. And in the other extreme, you have a a fully saturated graph, a, a set in which everyone is connected to everyone else. That's also not efficient. You have too much inputs. So in between, there are myriad possible, you know, extraordinarily large number of possible arrangements of social networks. And it's not, it's not a coincidence that, that natural selection has shaped these, our pattern of friendship formation in a fashion that, for instance, optimizes our ability to work together and, and communicate useful and reliable information which ultimately, I would argue, is our capacity for culture, which in turn is ultimately our source of wealth, health, and our ability to, to manifest a kind of social conquest of the earth, as E.O. Wilson says. Our, what makes us such a successful species able to occupy niches everywhere on the planet is not our bodies, but our minds, which give us the capacity for culture and give us the capacity to you know, find water in the desert and invent kayaks in the Arctic. So 
Anyway, that's another topic. But what I'd like to go back, if I might, is to your sure. original question about groupiness and deindividuation. First of all, deindividuation is very valuable if you need a group to take risks. For example, to engage in defense against attacks by other groups. You don't want everybody afraid for their own life, unable or unwilling to band together to mount a defense or to work together to bring down a mastodon, some large game animal. You need some, some kind of sense of commitment to the group. And there, it's, it's very clearly the case that, um, the, the, that, that natural selection has shaped us to be able to cooperate with others. And in particular, in our species, with, with genetically unrelated individuals. This is one of the key ways in which we differ, for example, from ants and, and uh, termites and wasps and other eusocial insects, is that we're not clones. We're each different. And it's amazing that we have this capacity for friendship with unrelated individuals, which we'll also yeah. come back to. But, but having said all that very quickly, I'd like to go back to the groupiness. And so here's the thing. Imagine you have a large population. Let's, let's put it in modern terms. Imagine you have the United States, you have Americans. And underneath that large category, you have groups, which could be defined by religion or language or ethnicity or immigrant status or sexuality or whatever, occupation. And then below that, you have individuals the constituent individuals which make up a society. If we are struggling with tribalism, which we are in the, around the world today, and which incidentally we always have has been a challenge. So you, in the middle level, you have the, these groups which draw very bright distinctions between us and them. And they grant us a great amount of charity and them you know, are seen as the enemy. We political parties too, by the yeah. way. The, 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 the reason we have this type of us versus them mentality and this, this desire to form these groups, one of the reasons is to reduce the scale. In other words, in order to cooperate, as I mentioned a bit earlier with that example of the networks, in order to cooperate, it's too challenging to have to cooperate with everybody. So natural selection has equipped us with the capacity to make these distinctions between us and them. In part, many believe, and I agree, to make it possible for us to cooperate. In other words, there's a, a kind of co-evolution, this kind of xenophobia or parochialism or tribalism has co-evolved with our capacity for altruism and kindness yeah. and, and cooperation. So this, this very thing which gives us trouble is also the very one of the very things which makes it possible for us to be nice to each other. Because otherwise the challenge would be nice to be nice to everybody, which isn't an easy thing to achieve. Well, didn't Samuel Bowles do that yes. game theoretic work? Yeah, yeah, Sam Bowles exactly, and and Sergey Gabrilets and and uh, Robert Axelrod and, and right. many people have done work like that. So, so in the middle, so 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 one of the tools we have to foster cooperation is to, and because of the challenge of scale, is that have this type of groupiness. Incidentally, this serves other purposes, but for present purposes, going back to our thing, we got America, we've have groups, we've got individuals. One way to tackle tribalism is to is to take advantage of some of our evolutionary machinery and step up a level to the level of the whole country and and use our capacity to define groups and define the group more broadly, like we are all Americans. And this has always been part of our history. It's in fact part of the American ideal, part of the American project. Anyone can be an American. We are one of the few nations, the American project is one of the few nations where you just arrive on our shores. You, you commit to the Bill of Rights and certain liberal principles, and you can become an American. You know, it's not defined along ethnic or religious or any such ground. So we, we've not always adhered to these ideals, obviously. 
But nevertheless, the ideal is that anyone can become an American at pluribus unum, and and you know you so so we could we could we could uh, step up a level from groups, use our capacity to define us versus them, broaden the definition, and say we're all Americans. And this, in my view, is one strategy we could literally cognitively employ to break down some of these tribal barriers. But there's another strategy that's less obvious and that's equally important and equally a part of our tradition, and that's to step down a level to the level of individuals. And here's an interesting thing. We humans have evolved the capacity for individual identity. And this is actually really odd. It's an odd paradox that in order to live socially, we first have to be individuals. And what do I mean by that? Well, we, we communicate our individual identity with our faces. Every human face is different than every other human face. And, and it turns out that this, is a, this, is a, this capacity to have individual faces is unusual in the animal kingdom. And not only that, but you can look at it a sea of 1,000 or 10,000 faces, and you can tell the difference between every other face. And this cognitive machinery you have in your brain is also a luxury. These are evolutionary luxuries. The, the capacity to signal and detect individual identity are evolutionary luxuries, which our species and a few others manifest. And in fact, they are necessary to live socially because you have to be able to tell, you know, this is my child, not someone else's child that I should raise. Uh, or this is, this is a friend and not an enemy or this is a person who cooperated with me or did not cooperate with me. So that in order to live with each other, we have to be able to detect the individual identity of each person. And natural selection has given us this capacity. Incidentally, as a tangent on a tangent, this capacity is also connected to our ability to experience grief, which is a, another whole topic. Anyway. I'd like to not lose sight of that footnote, but I can yeah. say that as someone who is regularly mistaken for Ben Stiller, our capacity to recognize individual faces is not what it might be. Yes, <laughs> it's true. And I can tell you, like, I am, I am, uh, have my own limitations in this regard, specifically with respect to people's names, although I'm pretty good with mm. faces. I can tell if I've seen you. I wouldn't mistake you for Ben Stiller, Sam. <laughs> I don't know if that's a compliment or not, but I'll, yeah, I'll Yes, that is. Okay. <laughs> so, so, but anyway, so, uh, so finishing up this point, this part of the point, I mean, that's why I love talking to you. It's like we could go in 10 different directions. But um, just finishing up this part of the point. So, so this capacity to, to, to see each other as individuals also provides a kind of liberation for the dehumanization of tribalism. We can step down a level. And this has been a part of our tradition too. In fact, this is what Martin Luther King was arguing when he said, you know, he looks forward to a time when people are, are judged by the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. He's saying we should treat each other as individuals. And he's totally right. And this also effaces tribalism. So. So tribalism, groupiness, which is a problem in our society today, is a part of our nature. It's depressing, at least to me, this preference of us versus them, exists for a number of reasons. But we have other tools at our disposal that evolution has equipped us with to cooperate as a, as a collective and avoid some of the downsides of tribalism. Well, that's a fascinating analysis. I actually, I detected in there a point of contact between the two levels that I had never really thought about before, but you were describing a way of escaping tribalism by going up a level and acknowledging that anyone who essentially can come in and share our values 
is part of our group. So this this effaces racism and and xenophobia and religious bigotry mm-hmm. and at least potentially everything accidental about a person that could keep him out of our group or keep him or her as them can be erased provided that person buy into certain ideas and certain ethical norms, presumably. But one of those core ideas, one of those norms, one of those political values that we're anchored to is the primacy of the individual, at least for most intents and purposes. I mean, so, so that you know, individual freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of belief, the freedom to be uncoerced and unmolested by one's neighbors, provided what you're doing isn't bringing harm to anyone else, a kind of you know, classically mm-hmm. liberal picture of the political landscape, that is one of the core values that so many of us share. It does seem like they, those two algorithms for escaping tribalism coincide, at least on, on that point. Well, first of all, I mean, I think you, you are highlighting, I mean, just to say that the things that you, the things that, um, the, the qualities that define the larger group need not be political qualities. I mean, the example you just gave about, and that we were talking about America, you could in principle broaden the group. For example, when the Hutus and the Tutsis were slaughtering each other, they could have broadened the group to say, you know, we are Africans, for example, or we are, uh, you know, some other, you know, we're descendants of this original settlers or whatever. I mean, you could, or, or if you have, uh, you have the Shiites and the, and the Sunnis that are killing each other, they could say, well, wait a minute, we're both Muslim, for example. You know, yeah. so it doesn't have to be a political affiliation. I was just using our country as an example. Right. But you're right to highlight that in our particular case, one of those founding beliefs that defines this higher order group is paradoxically a kind of commitment to individual, you know, the rights of individuals. And you're also then, I think, alluding to, you know, the well-understood challenge of, you know, poppers, the open society and its enemies. Yeah. You know, this, this notion that there is a sense in which our tolerance could actually be, uh, and our openness could actually be our undoing. So, which is a whole other topic and a whole other thing to, you know, to discuss, but we can um, solve that in 15 minutes. Yeah, exactly. We had left a number of footnotes behind though. I don't want to lose the point you were making about grief. And then I, then I want to back all the way up and go more systematically through your thesis. But what were you saying about grief and, and individuation? Well, grief, I mean, grief is, so here's the thing about grief. And I talk about grief in the book. I mean, I, I was a hospice doctor for many years. I um, took care of people who were dying, I don't know, for 15 years I w- in Chicago and then in, at uh, Harvard when I was uh, on the faculty there. And uh, I had my own personal experience with grief. My, my mother was terminally ill when I was a child. She mm-hmm. was diagnosed when I was six and she died when I was uh, 25. And she was just 47 when she died. And so, you know, I grew up with this. I, and any, many, I would suspect if I had to guess, maybe half your audience or a third of your audience would have had personal experience with grief, had someone they know died. This is less common in the modern world than it used to be, where often children would die. So people would have siblings or, or offspring yeah. that had died. Or, uh, but anyway, anyone who's had the experience of grief knows that it's this extraordinary particular kind of pain. It, it's, it can be a physical pain. You know, your, your, your jaw hurts from clenching and crying and your, your chest hurts and 
and emotionally it's just agony. And then you have all these other cognitive processes. You you see the dead person in a crowd. I mean, I've had this experience, and you know they're they're dead, but your heart wishes they were alive. And it, it's it's this is you know novels have been written about it. I mean, it's it's an incredibly profound human experience. This experience of grief. But the thing about grief is that it's unlike any other emotion. It's not sadness, right? It's something different. Like your sadness, I think, is very similar to my sadness. But your grief is rather different than my grief because it's connected to the death of a particular person. You grieve not when a stranger dies. You grieve when a very particular individual close to you dies. So, so grief is connected to our individuality. But one of the ironies is that we're not the only animals to feel grief. And um, other, certain other animals do. Now, in, these are particular animals. These are other social mammals that have evolved to live like we do. And, and, and I discuss those in the book. This includes, for example, elephants and whales, certain mm. whale species, certain primate species. And there's, one, there's a deep irony here, which I'll come back to the grief thing in a moment, that actually by examining the ways in which our social lives are similar to these other animals, we can better understand how we are similar to each other. In other words, the more like the more our friendships resemble the friendships of elephants, the more our friendships are the same the world over. And we can we can better understand the fact that friendship is a human universal or grief is a human universal or the capacity to recognize individuals is a human universal when we find analogous qualities to those in animal species like elephants. So the last common ancestor we had with elephants was about 85 million years ago. It was a small shrew-like mammal. As far as we know, it did not live socially. And here are these elephants over 85 million years, they evolve a way of living socially by convergent evolution that's very, very similar to our own. They have friendships like we do, for example, and they grieve. Many of the most expert ethologists of elephants believe like we do or similar to we do. So so anyway, so grief is a, is a very interesting itself phenomenon, and it's, it, it's, I think it reflects our individuality, and it's part of our sociality as well. So yeah, let's talk about the biological underpinnings of all of this, or the, the evolutionary underpinnings. So you referred to the social suite. What is the social suite? Well, <laughs> I'd like to back up even from that just one step and say, sure. you know, I think there's been a lot of attention in the sciences and in the public sphere to the way in which humans have evolved to you know, be inveterately bad, you know, our propensity for violence and selfishness and, uh, and mendacity. And, yeah. Um, well, yeah, we started with tribalism. Yeah, I mean, all of these qualities. But equally, we have been shaped for good. We've been shaped to love, to have a capacity for love and friendship and cooperation and, and teaching and many other fine qualities. And, and I think... These wonderful qualities have, you know, these, this bright side has been denied the attention that it deserves. And so, and, and moreover, I would argue this bright side is even more important. Keep in mind, I'm talking about the sweep of our evolution. So tens and hundreds of thousands of years. We, we can also talk distinctly about the sweep of our history, which is, you know, let's say over the last 10,000 years. But, but these larger forces shaped us for many, many years. They're, they're, they're deeper, I would argue, and more profound and certainly more ancient than the historical forces acting upon us today. And these forces shaped us for good because if whenever I came near you, you killed me or you filled me with lies, you know, you gave me useless or false information 
or you were otherwise uh, mean to me or, 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 or violent towards me, I would be better off living a, as a solitary animal. So, so the benefits of a connected life must have outweighed the costs. Yeah. And, and natural selection has acted on our ways of living socially as surely as it is it acted on our bodies and on our psychology. So, so, so one of the macro arguments of the book is that, the, the, that our genes and natural selection have shaped not just the structure and function of our bodies, not just the structure and function of our minds, but also the structure and function of our societies. And it has primarily equipped us with on balance good qualities. And, and, the, and the, there are eight that I highlight in the book, eight qualities that, that we are, eight features of this suite of qualities that make it possible for us to live together. And these are, first of all, the capacity to love and recognize, I'm sorry, to have and recognize individual identity. So this capacity to be individuals and recognize individuals, a love for partners and offspring. We're very unusual as a species in that we don't just mate with each other. We form a sustained and actually sentimental attachment. We love the people we have sex with. We don't always do, but we can and typically do. Friendship uh, is a third important quality. We form long-term non-reproductive unions with other members of our species. We're not the only animal that does it, but it's rare. And the other animals we already talked about, one, elephants, and there's a couple of others, a few others. Social networks, we form social networks. Cooperation, a preference for one's own group or in-group bias that we talked about earlier. A kind of mild hierarchy or relative egalitarianism. So uh, we, we, are, uh, we are an animal that neither is totally egalitarian nor too mm. authoritarian or, or too hierarchical. We, we, tend, we don't function well when we have no leaders, and we also don't like it when we have autocratic leaders, people who can impose too much punishment from above. Mm. And finally, we've evolved this capacity for social learning and teaching, which is also rare in the animal kingdom and is astonishing. So, so any, many animals can learn. You know, little fish in the sea can learn that if it swims towards the light, it finds food there. Uh, we don't just learn that way. We also learn by imitation or socially. So, and this is very efficient. You know, I could put my hand in the fire and I learn that it's hot and I pull my hand out. I have acquired some knowledge, but I paid a big price. Or I could watch you put your hand in the fire and I gain almost as much knowledge, but I paid none of the price. Mm -hmm. That's very efficient. Or you could teach me not to put my hand in the fire. And, and so we don't just learn on our individually, we don't just learn socially, but we actually set out to teach each other stuff. This is very rare in the animal kingdom, but we do it. So and these are all of these qualities, all of these fundamental aspects of our human nature, you will notice, pertain to how we interact with each other. So there's a whole other class of things, for example, our, our musicality, for instance, or our risk aversion, or other kinds of, or our uh, you know, visual cognition, for example all of which are other parts of human nature, but those can be experienced by isolated individuals, you know, by a hermit in the mountains can have a, right. a religious experience, for example. But I'm interested in the parts that require the presence of another person in order to reach their fruition. And so that's what I call the social suite. It's a suite of eight qualities that natural selection has shaped and that equip us to live together as a, as a social species. Right, right. It, it, does that phrase "social suite" originate with you? Yes. Nice. So it's, it's very—it's a very useful grouping, and and 
I would point out that these things are not, in principle, entirely isolated from one another. I mean, they they interpenetrate yes. each other. So when you were when you were discussing hierarchy there in the book, you differentiate at least two different types of hierarchy. There's there are dominance hierarchies and there are hierarchies based on prestige, mm-hmm. and those function differently. I mean, they're both important, or at least have been important to us as uh, social primates, but prestige matters more and more, one could argue, the more civilized we become. And prestige is, is the kind of thing that relates to some of these other capacities, like the, the capacity to teach. Yes. So there, there's, a, there's a lot going on there in, in, among those eight characteristics. Yeah. I mean, so the, on the, you're absolutely right. They're all interrelated in, in very complex and interesting ways. But just on the prestige thing, so just to you know, a dominance hierarchy has to do with the kind of costs that superiors can impose on their subordinates. And a prestige hierarchy has, uh, relates to the kind of benefits that a subordinate mm-hmm. can extract or get from a superior. So, and you can think of these as like, you know, a lot of, I mean, this is a, this is a bit of a simplification, but a dominance hierarchy often impose, it relates to how physically, you know, I, I, I'm bigger than you and therefore I can punish you or exclude you from mating opportunities, for example. And therefore, in a dominance hierarchy, subordinates avoid superordinates. But in a prestige hierarchy, in which I can bestow benefits upon you, I can teach you something useful, like how to light a fire or make a stone tool, for example. Now you don't avoid me, you seek me out. And I can attract, acquire power and attract followers, as it were, not by virtue of the costs I can impose on my subordinates, but by virtue of the benefits, which typically are cognitive, things I can teach them on my uh, subordinates and, and that my subordinates can, and that a subordinate can get from a subordinate. And in our species, we have evolved these parallel ways of having hierarchy, which both of which are important. It can be important in different circumstances and at different times. But the existence of this kind of prestige type of hierarchy connects, as you said, to this teaching and learning function our species has and also is connected, therefore, to our capacity for culture. It's interesting not to keep bringing this back to Trump, which is which is a sin I have not committed very often. I really have not mm. spoken about him for a very long time. But I'm, I'm worried you're you're associating anything I say with him. <laughs> no, no, but uh, but uh, I think I'm getting ready to read the Mueller report, so yes. he's he's on my mind. But it just occurred to me that one of the things I find so odious about him is that his status among those who purport to love him does seem to almost entirely depend on the dominance side rather yes. than the prestige side. Yeah, the I mean, harm that he can the you know the the harm that he can impose on others is what yes. is, some people find appealing. This is perhaps especially true of the other Republican politicians who are supporting him dis- despite the fact that he violates so many of their yes. declared values. It's it's obvious that they're worried about the political harm he can do yes. to them based on his ability yes. to drum up the base and their comparative inability to do so. There's something just sickening about it. That's right. I mean, I think that's, and you see this in different, you see this in politicians. I mean, politicians will exploit all kinds of aspects or, of, our, of our nature. I mean, we talked, we opened at the beginning with xenophobia. It's also a classic strategy to whip up us versus them hatred whether it's uh, the Inquisition or the pogroms or the Holocaust or, or you know, uh, against Mexicans or uh, against uh, particular religious groups or whatever it is, 
this this cultivation or or right now uh, you know in armenia there's this awful uh, situation where um you know the homophobia is being exploited Sim- similarly in georgia or or in sri lanka with the uh, islamist killing of christians in their churches or in new zealand you know with the white nationalists killing people in the mosques and it goes on and on and on politicians will often exploit this natural tendency we have to whip up hatred of a minority group, however defined, and of course, blame them. And, you know, this is fascism 101, actually. And it's something we really should see for what it is and push back against it. Let's pivot back to the social suite and its evolutionary underpinnings. And what's important here, as you point out, is not just that we are social, but that the burden and opportunity of being so has led to our capacity to produce culture. And culture is really an operating system that allows us to inherit all or or certainly most of the lessons learned by our predecessors. Mm -hmm. And so none of us starts from zero. We start from, you know, it's just, Mm -hmm. you know, you, I think you point out somewhere in the book, if you learned calculus in high school, you know, if we could build a time machine and send you back 500 years, you would know more mathematics than any person on earth. Yes. Just by your dumb luck at having been born. Exactly. Born in this moment when math had been, the calculus had been invented and by Isaac Newton and sort of polished by others. And the tools for teaching it had been developed by many people. And, and here you are, you just inherit this. And the same goes with all the roads and all the, you know, cosmology and, uh, you know, all the written languages and all the books and all the libraries and everything that's been invented or discovered by everybody in the past, our capacity to accumulate that knowledge across time and space, you know, is is extraordinary. And it is part of the thing that explains our success as a species. And it, it's true, I would argue, even with ethical norms, although the, the progress here is not as linear, but it is surely by accident that many of us are born into a culture where tolerance is a norm and where tribalism has been dialed down to to mm-hmm. significantly and where civilization so much of what we consider to be civilization can be taken for granted until there, there's some crazy dislocation that reminds us that we're capable of worse i think we're witnessing in our own time a, a kind of eruption of anti-science almost conspiracy thinking around much of what we've been talking about here was that people don't want to hear that there's a direct connection to our biology when we're talking about culture and how it's constructed and the sort of values which we could hold sacred as a result of it. As you and, and many others point out, we're not blank slates. We can mm-hmm. only use the tools we've inherited. Mm-hmm. and there's a clear interaction between culture and its evolution and our biology and mm-hmm. its evolution. So I, I wanted to kind of start you off in that direction and see where we go. First of all, I would say I, I can't imagine a sounder footing for social science than biology. I mean, what other foundation for social science would you properly propose? I suppose you could propose philosophy, sort of abstract principles that are reasoned from some kind of foundational axioms. And then built upon by logic, like you know geometry, but I think that that any good social science must begin with a deep understanding of of evolutionary biology. 
And, and for example, we've been equipped to be cooperative, to be groupy, to be cultural animals. All the stuff we've been discussing has all existed before we had any history at all. You know, these were, these were things that existed, uh, you know, before, before nation states, be before industry, you know, before patriarchy, you know, before all of this stuff. This is very ancient stuff that, that biology and our evolution equipped us for. So, so I think, first of all, on that level, I think it's important to have a foundation. Second, I would say to found social sciences on biology in large measure. And secondly, I would say that there is this set of ideas. Second, I would say that the very capacity we have for culture is itself part of the social suite, as I argued. And I would argue that while culture and history are obviously hugely important, that I actually think that they are a thin veneer over more ancient and more powerful forces. And, and then one of the metaphors I use is, imagine you're standing on a, on a plane and you see two hills and you know one is 300 feet and one is 900 feet. And you become very interested in this huge difference between the two. You know, one is three times larger than the other, and what low, you know, rainfall and erosion, and maybe maybe there's some human activity that's reshaping one hill and farming it, for instance, and what causes all these differences in the size of these two hills. And when you step back, you see, oh my goodness, I was stepping on a plateau at ten thousand feet, and these are actually two mountains, one of which is ten thousand three hundred feet, and one of which is ten thousand nine hundred feet. And there are these enormous tectonic forces that are actually at the root cause of the size of these mountains. And I think oftentimes when we look around the world and we focus on cultural differences, we're like people on a plateau obsessing about what I would regard as rather small differences. And actually, I think this is rather optimistic because what I'm essentially saying is, is that there's more that unites us than that divides us. This obsession with difference actually loses sight of our common humanity of the kind of fundamental qualities we share the world over, such as the social suite, that are human universals, that have been shaped by our biology over eons, and that we, we inexorably uh, manifest. So there's no culture. There's one exception. I, without love, for instance, between mates, and, uh, and uh, very few, if any, cultures without friendship and so forth. So, so the second part of my answer to your question about culture and our biology would have to do with the ways in which this culture, this capacity for culture is a, is a veneer on top of these other more powerful forces. But the third part and last part of my answer would have to do with the ways in which, in fact, culture and biology interpenetrate. So there's a whole set of ideas regarding gene culture coevolution, where our biology shapes our capacity for culture and our culture shapes our biology. And there are a number of famous examples of this, but one of the most famous and easiest to describe is um, this phenomenon of, of lactase persistence. So, so lactase is, a, is an enzyme we have in our bodies that allows us to digest milk, actually to digest lactose, which is the principal sugar in milk. And um, in, in ancient times, you know, more than 10,000 years ago, there was no reason for an animal such as ours, a mammal, to be able to digest a lactose after they were weaned because they, there was no milk for them to eat. You know, you, you had your mother's breast milk and then you were weaned and that was the last time you ever had milk in your life. And there was no reason for your body to be able to digest milk because there was no milk in the environment. So it would have been inefficient for evolution to have equipped you with a capacity to have the persistence of the lactase enzyme into adulthood. And that state of affairs persists forever. And then about 10,000 years ago, we start domesticating animals. 
And now those domestic animals provide a ready su a supply of milk that adults can drink. And, and therefore the capacity to, to digest lactose in adulthood becomes efficient and valuable. Those of us, that's another source of food that you can have. It's a, a, a source of hydration when water is low. So those people who had a mutation that allowed them to digest lactose into adulthood acquire a fitness advantage. And they are, um, you know, they're better able to, to uh, survive and reproduce and lead more offspring. And scientists have shown that between the last 3,000 and, and 9,000 years, so over historical time periods, which is amazing to me, this cultural invention, the domestication of animals, has reshaped our fitness landscape and changed our genes. So we are a different species than we would have been, or we have different genetic constitution than we would have been had we, had we not culturally invented this thing, this domestication of animal, animals. And it happens repeatedly. And what's amazing is that you find that otherwise similar peoples in ancient times, one of which becomes herders and domesticates animals and a nearby population that does not, it's only in the herders that you find this lactase persistence. Right, right. And, and this opens up a huge kettle of fish because it suggests that other things we do, for instance, our invention of cities, you know, between five and 10,000 years ago, maybe reshaping the kinds of people who can survive in cities, the kinds of brains that are good for living in cities are probably different than the kinds of brains that are good for living on the savanna. And so our invention of cities may be reshaping our genetic trajectory. I'm sure there are. I'm sure they yeah. are. Well, I think you point out there's some immunological evidence that uh, yes. our immune system has, has evolved because yeah. we've grouped together over the course of, again, what's ancient history, but is in evolutionary time just the blink of an eye. We're talking a few thousand years. Yes. And it could even be shorter than that. I mean, there's some sense that even over the last few hundred years, like I think people are becoming more myopic in part because of medieval lens grinders. Right. You know, someone like me would have been eaten by a lion 10,000 years ago, but, you know, I can buy glasses and, and survive quite fine. Well, so that's essentially the, an opposite trend. I mean, here, here you're talking about culture immunizing us against the kind of natural selective pressure that we assume our ancestors felt, which is if you, if you don't have good eyes, you're not going to make it. Now we've sort of relaxed the standard yes. of, of vision because everyone is supported by a culture that provides glasses. Yes. I mean, I think that's exactly right. So I didn't make a statement as to the direction. It's quite possible that, that qualities that you and I might judge to be good or bad, or that might be objectively good or bad in terms of fitness, would be advantaged by culture. Another provocative example has to do with religion. So, you know, you and I might think that the better, and I would agree, that a better way to organize society is not to reify uh, religious beliefs or religious sects, which, you know, can lead to a lot of evil and has led to a lot of evil in the world. Although I'm quite tolerant of religious religion and quite sympathetic to spiritual experience myself, frankly. Mm -hmm. But um, well, I can eat half of that cake you just baked. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. But there's no question that uh, religious people around the world are more fecund. So if it is the case that there are some genetic uh, qualities which predispose one to a uh, to religious beliefs, not, there's no evidence whatsoever, no evidence that the content of your beliefs is guided by your evolution. So there's no gene for being Buddhist or Christian, for example. But there is likely to be a set of genes that relate to your religiosity, your propensity to believe in things unseen. 
And um, and if in fact that's associated with having higher, more reproduction, mm. then you know, a thousand years from now, we may find a world that's uh, quite religious, uh, actually. So, um, so, so the point is that these these cultural qualities that we use. I mean, another example in the book, a very recent example, has to do with the so-called sea nomads uh, that live a, in a in a part of the Pacific, you know, near near New Guinea. They uh, near, near the Philippines. They uh, are a, a group of people who took to the sea, and and are foragers on the sea, and they're the world's champion divers. They can free dive, you know, with basically no equipment. Uh, and, and forage underwater for five hours a day. And, and these individuals have a mutation that's been recently shown in their spleens or, or have a mutation which allows them when diving to survive low oxygen uh, situation much longer by basically expressing oxygenated red blood cells from their spleens. So, and these mutations are seen in people of, of a certain ethnic descent who took to the sea mm-hmm. and not in otherwise similar people who stayed on land. So here again, we have a cultural innovation, you know, the invention of a whole set of seafaring technologies, you know, boats and spears and a lifestyle and beliefs about living under, living on the ocean. And then that those among those people who are better able to survive have more children and this, these mutations expand and make it possible for them. So once again, we have an example of culture reshaping our, our genetic trajectory. And so this is, this is another, this is like closing out that part of your question, like the relationship between culture and our biology is, is very deep and occurs in many kind of phenomenological and uh, practical ways as we've been discussing. Mm. Well, you spun the thinness of culture as good news because we, we share this underlying biological inheritance with everyone and culture can only derange us so much. But I feel that many people will look at that topology differently and draw the opposite lesson, that attributing much about us to biology is a grimmer story because they view that as a kind of deterministic picture, a reductionist one, an essentialist one, a a somehow paradoxically dehumanizing one to ascribe much about us to biology. So how, how do you think about that? Well, I would, I would, I would, I would say I'm understanding of and sympathetic of some of those philosophical debates and critiques of, you know, regarding determinism and essentialism, you know, the argument being, for example, that, that it's a kind of dehumanizing, essentializing of our experience to say, actually, we humans, you know, have no free will, no inventive capacity. We're just, you know, biological organisms, you know, what makes us different than, than jellyfish. And so I, I, I understand why people might react that way. And I understand the philosophical critique, but I would respond in part by saying, are you suggesting that there's something that is not wonderful about the capacity for love or the capacity for friendship? And are you suggesting that, that you think there's something wrong with a claim that this is seen universally? These and and that the reason for this is in fact not cultural. The reason they're seen universally is that because natural selection has shaped these qualities. So I don't, you know, I don't, I don't see these claims about the universality of these traits. And in fact, what might be a more provocative claim that these universal traits are also good traits. Because let's not forget they might have been bad, universally bad. 
That is to say, you know, we are all prone to violence everywhere around the world, which is also true. I mean, what, one point that we would have to make here is that the fact that they're inherited, the fact that they're natural, does not tell us whether they're good or bad. We have to evaluate yes. that by some other standard, because you obviously there, there's a long list of traits which we are desperate to outgrow, you know, tribal violence being one of them. And those are just as inherited. So, and, and so we use the, yeah, my, you know, the good inheritance favorite, against the bad. My favorite example of this is is maternal mortality, right? I mean, women die delivering children. There's, no, there's nothing more natural than that. Natural. Yeah. That's quite natural, but we don't think it's good at all. Right. It's not good. It's awful. And we are quite pleased to be able to apply modern technology and hygiene to reduce the burden of maternal mortality. So, you know, I'm, I'm not proposing a kind of naturalistic fallacy, but I do agree with some arguments that Philip Afoot has made, a moral philosopher, when, when, when trying to see, you know, is there a kind of, kind of non-philosophical, it's not quite the right word, but is there a kind of foundation for moral philosophy that we can find that's not simply a question of voting? Right. You know, the, the, after the Holocaust, this became an especial problem in moral philosophy. How could you look at these images after the Second World War and think that you know, that there's something fundamentally good about human beings. And, um, and also, how could you not, you know, how could you, things that were good to one group might be seen as evil to another, they kind of descended into a kind of moral relativism. The feeling was there had to be an escape for this kind of moral relativism. What, what would be a kind of possible foundation for a kind of moral universalism? And, and I would argue that actually our biology provides a way out for that because I mean, as Foote and, and, and other moral philosophers have argued, there is a question of, I'm all over the place right now because I, I want to come back. Let me yeah. actually start with her example. Okay. She has a very famous saying, which is, you know, I think she said in moral philosophy, it's quite useful. I have to look up her exact saying, but I think she said in moral philosophy, it's quite useful to think about plants. And um, she spoke about how when you think about plants, you can say that this tree, this plant has good roots. And you could make a claim about the goodness of the roots of the plant, or you would say, this is a good clock. And this clock is good because it tells time correctly. And the, the essence of a rather subtle and complex argument she makes is that you can judge the goodness of a thing by its fulfillment of its, of its intention, of its role. And by analogy, I would say we can judge the goodness of a society by asking, how is it good for us? How are these roots good for the plant? How are, how are our ways of social living good for us? To what extent do we adhere to our truest nature, as it were? And here, I think you see natural selection provides a way out because it is good for us to love each other. It is good for us to befriend each other, to cooperate with each other, to teach each other. And, and these things that we think of as, as moral principles can slip and slide. You know, we can debate them until they reach a kind of bedrock, which is, I would argue, natural selection. And, and I would also say, this is a bit of a tangent, that many of the things that we consider virtues, actually, with just a little bit of thought, you can see are, are necessarily social. So we're not interested in whether you love yourself or are kind to yourself or are just to yourself. Mm. We're interested in whether you are kind to others or love others or adjust to others. So the presence of others is required even for the very definition of these things we regard as virtues. So 
I would say that it is possible to ground a kind of moral philosophy, not all of moral philosophy, not every principle, and I, and I acknowledge that it, it's contentious and not easy, but I would say that there are many ways in which a moral philosophy could be, could be grounded actually on evolutionary biology. Yeah, I, I guess I, I come at that question a little differently. I, it, it basically, yeah. it conserves, I think, almost everything you want to say about the connection between biology and, and morality and certainly the human behaviors that safeguard it, you know, cooperation probably being the chief one. But I, I mean, I think, you know, Philip Afoot's example is easily overturned if you say, well, you know, the virtue of a, of a Holocaust or the virtue of a final solution is in how efficiently it liquidates the targeted group. It's kind of a semantic game you can play with anything, and many of these things we would recognize mm -hmm. as morally abhorrent. A better example would be a shark, right? What is a good shark? Yeah, a, good, a, good a good shark, shark is one good, that can the, rip its prey to bits, right? Yeah, the, the, the best shark is a, a shark that keeps you out of the ocean for the rest of your life. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I think that there's no way to get out of asserting some value here that is the noun I put in as a placeholder for ethical bedrock here is well-being, the well-being of, of not just humans, of, of conscious mm -hmm. creatures, ultimately. In my worldview, consciousness is the true carrier of value. So if, you, if you're talking about you know, creatures that can't suffer and can't experience any diminution of their happiness, those are creatures, whatever else they are, that have no interests and, and, have, and it's not really, you can't harm them because you can't change their experience because mm -hmm. they have no experience, right? So so once we smuggle consciousness into the clockwork, however that happens, mm -hmm. then we're talking about the possibilities of suffering and happiness in this universe. And given what we are, given what we're evolved to be, we, we are standing on, on some place on you know, what I would call the moral landscape. And mm -hmm. we, have our, we have just a few tools to work with. We have everything we've inherited cognitively and emotionally to talk about the stark biology and culturally, which obviously interacts with the biology. And we, so, and we have these capacities as social primates, and we have all of the institutions and memes and, and mm -hmm. ideas that we trade in, and these have very direct effects on us, again, cognitively, emotionally, therefore at the level of the brain. And we are continually doing things, building culture, fighting wars, and the question is to what end and but the end is will be good or bad depending on the prospects of experience in this universe that we explore i mean there's no question we could create a living hell on earth that would last a thousand years and that would only be bad by virtue of how bad it is to be in that hell and we could create some kind of utopia which we we can all dimly envision at this point where the kinds of barbarism and needless misery that our ancestors routinely experienced would mm -hmm. become unthinkable. And that would be good because of all of the creativity and beauty and love and positive sociality that we would experience in the absence of those things. And so, but again, you're still talking about, at least in my view, well-being in as capacious and as elastic a definition as you want, the frontiers of well-being and exploring them as social beings to talk about the human case. Well, I mean, I would share many of those beliefs with you, as I think you know. I mean, I, I don't think 
I'm not a moral relativist at all. I do think you can, in fact, if anything, I'm arguing constant with you that it's possible to have some kind of quasi-absolute morality. Yeah. You know, I don't think it's, I mean, you and I have talked about this before, so I quite agree with that claim. I, I do like the consciousness idea. You know, I, I think even in our lifetimes, increasingly, we've come to appreciate the consciousness of other animals. Mm -hmm. I have no doubt that elephants are conscious, for example. Yeah. Many people increasingly think octopuses are conscious, which is just astonishing if you begin to think about this invertebrate with whom our last common ancestor was more than 500 million years ago, independently evolving this capacity. So, you know, so, and I, and so I, I do think you could develop a morality built on that type of a foundation, but the problem would be you would always have edge, edge cases there too, right? Yeah. Like, you know, more and more, you know, how do we define consciousness? Which animals are conscious? Oh my goodness. Now, you know, these, these animals that we didn't like, we used to eat octopuses because we thought they were like crabs, but oh my goodness, they're not crabs or oh my goodness, even crabs have consciousness. So, you know, where does that stop? So, so I, I mean, I, I agree with, uh, with much of what, what you said. And I, and, you know, this is also the, the, you know, the endless tension between a kind of utilitarian versus deontologic posture with respect to morality. And I, I think in some ways, those are two different tools to approach maybe different moral questions in different places and different times. Yeah. Well, I, I just think I, one reduces to the other when push comes to shove. I mean, so they just remind people of their basic meta-ethics. Deontology is a kind of rule-based morality. You know, it's, it's always wrong to lie, say, whereas utilitarianism is, or consequentialism is the analysis of the the consequences of lying in each case, and you know, to say that it's always wrong to lie, to really believe that is to say that human well-being will be something like maximized if everyone follows that rule. I mean, there's no no deontologist would say it's always wrong to lie, while also admitting that following that rule creates an immense amount of human misery, right? I mean, so there's some calculation of its of its consequences, whether the consequences are being thought about in each case. Hmm. Did I just hit the wall of your interest in metaethics? <laughs> no, 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 I was I didn't have anything that's, to add to that's, that. That's, that's the sound of, of the shovel hitting bedrock. I, I was thinking of a new book by uh, Patricia Churchland called Conscience, yeah. Con uh, The Origins of Moral Intuition. And one of the things she argues about deontology is, uh, is that it, it, it very conveniently overlooks the fact that we are social animals and we, or utilitarianism, I'm sorry, right. it very conveniently overlooks like, in fact, I don't care about the, the average happiness of the whole population. I only care about the happiness of my friends. And um, right, but the, so to, yeah, but to propose a yeah. kind of utility maximization is really inconsistent with the way we have evolved. Well, well, that's fine. I, we can grant all that, but just let's just say, let's say that's our default mode, right? That's the status quo. We, yeah. as much as we extend the circle of our moral concern, we don't do it perfectly and yeah but the problem is she she would say in order to even take utilitarianism seriously it has a serious problem because you know you have to define the population over which you are maximizing the utility and this will be a non-overlapping population for different people so i will have the following 50 people matter to me right and i would gladly slaughter millions to make these 50 people happier and you would have a different 50 people or even a different perspective on those millions you know so well, so, so yeah, it's just so that boundary is is typically not even it's like treated axiomatically by the utilitarians, right? They say, imagine a population, and we're going to define the utility as being 
the you know highest average happiness across this population, but every person in that population has a different vision of what the population should be. Well, yeah, but then we all benefit from recognizing that cooperation with a group larger than one's immediate kin or or friends or family is necessary in our world. And so, how does that happen, right? So then, mm. then intuitions of fairness and justice inevitably come online. But we, we can grant the fact that it's hard to care about distant strangers who are suffering, and it's very easy to care about your own child suffering, mm. right? So we discount the well-being of others massively in accordance to some variable, you know, phys- even just physical distance is, is significant, right? You tell me about a problem. Well, we were, I mean, even when we were talking about grief earlier, we said, you know, you feel intense grief when someone you love dies, but, and you know, but you don't feel grief at all right. when a stranger dies. So. Right, but if I told you if I told you we created a social network that was exactly like Facebook and it has all of the charm and contemptible properties of Facebook. Mm-hmm. But using this social network would have a slightly different effect rather than maximize ad revenue, it would send billions of dollars a year to increase the well-being of the poorest and most mm-hmm. you know, disease-ridden people on earth, right? So, and absolutely no cost to you, the user, right? Zero mm-hmm. effect, your experience would be exactly the same, you know, as if by, you know, let's, let's forget yeah. about the economic details here. This is just, <laughs> just, just done by magic, right? Mm-hmm. Where can we stand to say that it would be better or good, morally speaking, to switch to that network? Right, it's it's just obvious that it would be good, right? And you, you don't, mm-hmm. you Patricia Churchland doesn't have to care about anyone for that to be obvious. Mm-hmm. She can still only care about her kids, but we can stand in a place and say, mm-hmm. Patricia, you're actually wrong. Like, if you don't switch from Facebook to this new network, mm-hmm. you know, at no cost, because again, no cost to you, it's perverse to have a preference for Facebook. Yes, right. Yeah, I mean. Another, yes, I take your point and I agree with it. Uh, I think that's a good counterexample. Or another one might be a, 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 a hypothetical in which you imagine, you know, this, this, this question, I'm sure you've thought about this. I actually have not thought about it a lot, so I'm sure you've thought about it more than me. But, but this question of what duty, what duty do we owe our distant descendants? Yeah. I mean, why don't yeah. we destroy the Same earth? problem, yeah. Why don't all those people alive today just consume every resource and leave nothing? Okay, we are concerned about our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, but, you know, do you really care or know about your great, 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 great grandchildren? So why don't we just despoil the environment? Well, all else being equal, I think you can make quite a good argument as to why we shouldn't do that. Listen, I, due to my lactose tolerance, I can eat the last ice cream in the freezer, even with my children in the house, who I pretend <laughs> to care about. So, <laughs> well, I would It's, it's, pretty, would it's a that, dark picture of selfishness over here. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure we could interview them yeah. about this. I mean, we could, you know, we, um, one of the things I do, I do in the book is really on the topic of how we get along is I, um, is I look at uh, natural experiments in social order. So I look at things like shipwrecks or communes. Yeah. And, and, and part of the reason I do that is because if you, if, you were, if you were really trying to approach this problem scientifically, so like let's say it's the case that, as I've been arguing that, as, and as we've been discussing, that there's a kind of way in which there's a, a natural and good society that natural selection has shaped us to make with these qualities we've been discussing, like love and friendship and so forth. How can we really test that idea? Well, in a fantasy world, at least in a fantasy of a deranged scientist, what you would like to do is take a group of children, you, you know, like you're talking about your kids and the ice cream, 
and uh, and abandon them on an island uh, when they were babies and uh, let them grow up, you know, with food or whatever in this hypothetical example, and uh, see what kind of society they made. What kind of social order did they did they form? Did they love each other and cooperate and teach each other and so forth? And now, obviously, we we can't do that. It, you know, it's unethical and cruel. But it hasn't incidentally stopped certain very powerful monarchs, you know, from attempting this. So, so Herodotus talks about an Egyptian pharaoh that was very interested in what kind of language would we speak naturally if we were not taught. And so this, this, this uh, pharaoh took two children and gave them to a mute shepherd up in the mountains to raise to see what kind of language these children would speak. He, he wanted to see this pharaoh had a scientific interest, which was what was this ancient language. And there have been some kings in, uh, and, uh, and emperors, uh, you know, in the last thousand years that have attempted similar uh, kinds of topics. For example, there was one king, I forgot his name, that wondered, you know, what was the language of Adam and Eve? And so he thought, ah, I'll do the same, you know, I'll do this experiment. So this has been called the forbidden experiment. So the experiment I would like to do is, in fact, a forbidden experiment, you know, to try to see what kind of social order would humans make if, if subjected to this. So we can't do that. But there are certain potential proxies. And in the book, I review these proxies. So I, I talk about unintentional communities, intentional communities, and artificial communities or experimental ones. So the unintentional ones are things like shipwrecks. And I review all the shipwrecks. There are about 20,000 shipwrecks between uh, 1500 and 1900. And I find a set of uh, 20 of them that involved uh, 19 people who were stranded on a distant shore for two months or more. And the question is, how did these stranded people organize themselves socially? And what can we learn about a good social order from these, you know, these experiments? Yeah. And, th and those um, are f fascinating, both in how they go wrong and how they go right. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's lots that can be learned, actually, from those. And actually, this also speaks to things like our colonization of space. You know, we can learn from these examples, what would be the optimal arrangement of a, of a crew or of a first uh, Martian colony, for example, I would argue that any kind of social order that we would try to engineer must respect the social suite, must respect these kind of qualities that we're discussing. And we can learn. I mean, I, I also look at the mutiny of the bounty and, uh, and the Pitcairn Island. I look, at, I look at the Polynesian expansion where, you know, these, you know, because of their cultural innovation, the ancestral Polynesians settled the Pacific which is just an astonishing feat. I mean, these people would build, build canoes and navigation techniques that allowed them to navigate thousands of miles over the open ocean and, and fill the Pacific. So those are a whole bunch of examples that are very instructive. And then, then I look at examples like communes, you know, from the 1970s or kibbutzes or, or 19th century communitarian movements in the United States, like Brook Farm or the Shakers. Mm. And, and these are intentional communities. These aren't or scientists that, for example, that go to a scientific outpost in Antarctica. You know, how do 30 scientists that are stranded in Antarctica for 10 months, how do they get along? And what's the optimal order for them? And these are a little bit different because they're not quite the ideal experiment because, you know, they, these are groups of people who self-assemble and decide to go out. This incident is also interesting because at least since Roman times, probably forever, there have always been people who have said, you know, this society sucks. Let's just set out and make it anew. And invariably, they're unable to do so, which is also very telling. So those are a, an instructive set of cases. And then, then finally, I also look at cases, which we've done in my laboratory. We, we have um, 
we have invented a kind of software that allows us to create temporary artificial societies of real people. Tens of thousands of people have participated in these experiments. They come and they spend a one or two hours in our online lab, and we, in a godlike way, experimentally manipulate their social arrangements and test ideas about what kinds of arrangements are optimal. Or we can look at online games, for example, sort of World of Warcraft or, or, or you know, uh, various other kinds of massive multiplayer online games, and you can see how they are organized. And, and the bottom line is, across all of these examples, again and again, you find that the variety of social order that human beings manifest is actually very constrained. Yeah. So if you could, you could imagine a universe of possibilities that our species could do, we don't do it. We make a tiny little kind of, they look different. You think, oh my goodness, these societies, this society is polyandrous and this society is polygynous and this society is, is pastoral and this society is forager. But those differences are tiny. We are occupying a tiny part of this vast space of possible societies, of possible worlds. Right. And again, this has to do with our natural selection. That's what I argue. Uh, not to drag you recklessly onto controversial ground, but uh, really to do just that. One, <laughs> one of the, um, the punchlines, it seemed to be, of your analysis of elective communities like uh, kibbutz is that gender roles are not as fungible as many people expect, no. especially around the, you know, raising kids. Yes. What do you want to say about that that can be tweeted to your disadvantage until the end of time? Uh, <laughs> well, I would say that, you know, this argument that the gender roles, I mean, there's no doubt a huge role of culture in specifying uh, gender roles. But, you know, I think you just have to go look at other animals that, you know, where there is no history and no culture. And they have very similar gender roles, you know, so male and female elephants and male and female dolphins and male and female chimpanzees, they manifest a set of traits very often, which are very similar to the traits that male and female humans do. And, you know, we, we obviously can transcend some of that. We've been discussing free will today and the role of culture. And there are ways in which we can consciously push against some of these things, but there are limits. So for example, we, uh, there's one exception or one possible exception, there's no society on earth that manages to suppress the love people feel for their partners. E even in arranged marriages, even in societies with arranged marriages, while love before marriage is seen as risky and a poor foundation for organizing a society, love after marriage is seen as a very much desired uh, and sought after outcome. So even in societies where brides and grooms have never met each other before the wedding, they want to be in love afterwards. Everyone else wants them to be in love afterwards. And here's the news, they, they almost always are in love afterwards. And in fact, the, the affection we feel for our partners in arranged marriages is, has been shown to be no different than the, on these various measures uh, than in love matches. So, so societies are unable to suppress this and, and societies are similarly unable to completely suppress a certain set of uh, biological manifestations of sex. And so the kibbutzes, Many, many um, all-encompassing societies, whether they're totalitarian or, or communitarian movements like the kibbutzes, face a problem because they want to equalize, or communist societies are the same, they want to efface uh, gender. So you get men and women starting to dress similarly. You have the problem of childcare. So you have, um, in the kibbutzes famously, the children would be raised communally. And, and this broke down. They, they could not sustain this, despite a great desire that 
the, the, the families and the women in particular. In fact, they spoke of this as the, the, the women rebelled against this, and this has been well documented, and they spoke about this as the natural needs of motherhood. You know, they just missed their children. Right. They couldn't bear to be without their children, again, because of the attachment uh, we feel for our offspring. So, so those did not survive. There's, to my knowledge, there's no society, it's been attempted many times, but there's no society that has been able to, to sustain a communal raising of children. There's some uh, sects in the United States that did it for one or two generations, but, but not more. Right. And I talked a little bit about that. One of my graduate students grew up in a, in, a, in a commune like that, and I have a long footnote about his experience, actually. And, and, and ditto the gender roles. I would say there are, there are limits to, to and, and I don't, and I, and I uh, yeah, anyway, there are limits. So, so again, to put... Did I say anything that's going to get me in too much trouble? I'm not, not sure. Not yet, but know. I'm going to give you another not chance. Yet. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to keep you're, going? You're actually going to have to pull the brakes audibly so that... Uh, okay. So that we... we we'll have we, one of those silences we had yeah. earlier when we were talking about utilitarianism <laughs> right. and deontology. So, um, okay, but to take take something like um, James Damore's memo and his subsequent firing uh, from Google, uh-huh. right? So, to most people's eye, he wrote a fairly honest and unobjectionable summary of the relevant social science, you know, modulo anything he might have gotten wrong. But it, this was not a a malicious and sexist diatribe. This was a an acknowledgement that we shouldn't expect to see a perfect 50-50 representation of men and women in every cultural circumstance because there are differences between men and women. And these differences are not primarily a matter of ability, although those may certainly exist. And it's utterly taboo to even speculate that they might, as Lauren Summers found out. Mm -hmm. But it could just be a difference in interest Right, and so if you have more, if you yes. have more women scientists interested in biology, as seems to be the case, I think I think women biologists outnumber men at this point. There will very likely be a deficit of women physicists, if that's yes. the way the interest deck gets shuffled. So, is what is one on firm ground in at the level of social science saying those things? Well, I, I- I read his memo when it came out, but it's been over a year since I read it, and I might have a different attitude towards it today. But I, I didn't think there was anything scientifically meaningfully in, incorrect in what he wrote. You know, I thought he was describing, you know, well-replicated findings. Now, there may be, as you said, modulo. I, I can't vouch for everything right. in the memo at this particular moment. I don't have it in front of me. I don't remember every detail. But I do remember reading it and thinking, that much of the stuff he said was pretty conventional. There's another computer science professor in the Pacific Northwest who subsequently made similar arguments and drew similar fire. So on the one hand, I think there are a variety of gender differences which are inherent and which are innate. They, how they manifest themselves in modernity is an interesting question. You know, we, in a world in which we do have the computer science exists as a field. But it's also the case that there are cultural factors, and I think we can honestly... I don't think we need to set up a false dichotomy between these things. So, for example, one of my favorite examples about this is not the example you brought up, biology, or I think the best example is psychology, but it's astrophysics. Astrophysics, I think, has 50-50 almost men and right. women. And it's fascinating to me. You know, why is that? And there's a, there's a set of arguments. You know, it's very hard to be an astrophysicist. I wish I could be an astrophysicist. I was not, you know, born with a brain. I don't think that makes me capable of being an astrophysicist. 
but it's about 50-50. And, and I think the argument is in essence that it, it was a founder effect. That as you, you know, sort of pass specificity mm-hmm. early on in the history of astrophysics, some women were able to get a foothold and this created a slightly different environment in which, uh, you know, subsequent generations of women could thrive. And, and I think this is a great thing. I think any field, and I'm sure everyone, every sensible person would agree. I can't imagine anyone. I suppose there would be some very conservative or, you know, I, I suppose maybe in certain parts of the Islamic world, for example, or Orthodox Judaism, there would be like a strong commitment to the exclusion of women from certain fields. But I think most sensible people would say that it's better for the society if opportunities are available to everybody. And so it's worse for us if there are brilliant female astrophysicists and we have a sexist policy that prevents them from becoming astrophysicists. It's, we're all harmed by that. The women are harmed, but the rest of us are harmed too because we're denied the opportunity to have this really talented person practice her, her, her God-given talents, her profession. So, and the same applies across any social axis. Right. So I would be, yeah, and I'm sure every sensible person, I hope, would agree with this claim. What's interesting, though, about what about this topic is that, and there's been a spate of literature about this that's just come out in the last few years, is that ironically we find greater levels of gender dis- difference in occupational assortment in more equal societies. Yeah. So you find that in Scandinavian countries, which nobody would accuse of being sexist, so you go to Albania and you find 50-50 right. men and yeah. women are doctors and engineers. At the point of a gun, yeah, right. Yes, at the point of a gun, but you create a wealthy society with freedom of choice and you find, unsurprisingly, as as far as I'm concerned, you find a a distribution that is superficially maybe more sexist, but it's not. It's people exercising their free choice. And and I actually would like to have a society organized in that way. Yeah. We have to acknowledge that we're having this conversation that the fact that this is, that we feel we're walking on eggshells at all here is symptomatic of the larger yeah. cultural moment, which is we're in the midst of a kind of moral panic on the left yes. that has made the frank acknowledgement of any of these points taboo. Yeah, to claim that there's a biology of gender is seen as, but it's, it's just, I mean, it's just idiocy to reject that, honestly. I mean, they're just, uh, the, the abundance of evidence is it's just so overwhelming. It's a kind of, it's a kind of, you know, it's, it, how can the left accuse the right of being climate science deniers yeah. and then turn around the next moment and say there's no biological evidence for gender? It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. Well, I can only say that as the father of two girls, anyone who would allege that I have coerced them into liking princess dresses or any of the other affectations of the feminine that are, yes. are in every corner of my house right now, that would be a false charge <laughs> because I, yes. I have, resi- I yes. have resisted. And I think the color pink as much as as much as humanly possible. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think, you know, here, too, there are a couple of points which I'm sure you would endorse, like, you know, pink is a feminine color in our society, but let's say not in India. Right. And so, you know, that's arbitrary, these definitions. But what is interesting, and we also wouldn't want a society in which a girl that was interested in, you know, not interested in pink or dolls or whatever, she should be allowed to express herself. I mean, I think everyone would endorse these principles, every sensible person. I would yeah. But... But in fact, when, and this is actually also in my book, when you look at the play of children, even in forager societies, which, which aren't, don't have modernity, it's very gendered. You know, you look at the gendering of play around the world in all kinds of matriarchal societies, you know, patriarchal societies, uh, matrilineal, patrilineal, patrilocal, matrilocal. Mm-hmm. These are all important distinctions for anthropologists. Mm-hmm. You look at subsistence patterns and everywhere you go, you find this kind of reproduction of 
gender preferences in toys and style of play among young people, children. And, and I, you know, and you find this in chimpanzees. Uh, you can look at how chimpanzees play, you know, the, the male and the female chimpanzees. So, so really, I don't think we need to, you know, relitigate this as far as I'm concerned. Mm. And I also don't think, you know, one of some of the listeners or some, some people will probably try to accuse me or you of being sloppy with the distinction between sex and gender. And I quite understand that, how that has been defined by certain groups, certain thinkers. And so I have been a bit sloppy in my interchange of the use of sex and gender in this conversation, but I quite understand it. Right. Okay. Well, we'll just leave um, that fine print uh, uh, <laughs> as, as a uh, bulwark, however ineffectual, against the misuse yes. of this conversation. So yeah, I'm now mindful of your time, Nicholas, but there's just a couple of other points I want to touch. I guess, so back to culture for a second, the thing that concerns me is that, you know, as much as we have this reservoir of sound traits to draw on biologically, and as obvious as it is that we want to incentivize cooperation among 7 billion strangers, there are aspects to culture that make that incredibly hard to do, if not impossible. And we do have examples of cultures where almost everything that's good about us seems to be subverted. And so I guess I'm alarmed by the power of bad ideas to both block Mm -hmm. or or subvert good ones and to to make things that should be impossible, not only possible, but likely to happen. I mean, you know, the ultimate case here for me is something like suicide bombing, right? Like if anything should be impossible, it should be impossible to convince someone to do that, right? And especially to do that when none of the conditions that people often imagine conspire to make someone do that are present, right? So you talk about somebody who's not mentally ill, somebody who's not poor, who has not been uh, mistreated, this mm-hmm. is a person who has economic and social opportunities in abundance. Like the bombers in Sri Lanka, yeah. who are, who, some of them were the educated and wealthy offspring of this very wealthy spice merchant. It's, it's exactly actually. What convinces such a person to do such a yeah, thing? So all, all I have to do is find one person who grew up happily, who's not suffering a mood disorder, who's good looking and social and seems to have everything going for him, or in this case, her. and show you that they, given the being enamored of certain ideas, they're willing to strap on a, a suicide vest and not only blow mm-hmm. themselves up, but blow up other people's children. And in this case, the, the one you just referenced, not only other people's children, but their own children, mm-hmm. which uh, happened with the female bomber there. And, and their cultural, I mean, again, some of this can seem like an outlier phenomenon, but there are certain ideas that can sweep the globe and become dominant in a culture. And, and you can see behavior that just, again, this, this goes back to where we started, but it becomes, you know, de-individuating and mob-like and mm-hmm. seems so irrational on its face, given the real opportunities for cooperation and well-being that are within reach for people. So I guess uh, just to close this out, what, what, what are the, the ideas or cultural products or divisions in our society that that are concerning you most at this moment? Well, I mean, I mean, first of all, I would highlight that, you know, during the Holocaust, we had a similar kind of mass delusion and everyone moving in lockstep and, you know, slaughtering people. Yep. And, 
And, you know, since time immemorial, we've had these things. I mean, Genghis Khan, when he was sweep, sweep across the steps, he would, uh, he would kill everybody in the city. Sometimes he would spare cities. It's quite interesting. But then they would create a mountain of skulls. Yeah. Like, you know, 100,000 people would be put to death, you know, by the sword. And all the women would be enslaved or killed. You know, it's just an astonishing level of violence that we are capable of. I mean, every century, every millennium is replete with horrors. Yeah. Quite understandable. Well, and the, apparently the evolutionary advantage of that is writ in um, our chromosomes because yes. it doesn't, something like half of Asian men or half. An eighth. And it, what was it, an eighth? Yeah, I think an eighth of Asian <laughs> men are descended from Genghis right. Khan. I don't remember the precise fraction. It's a shocking it's hilarious. fraction. Yeah. Genghis Khan or his brothers yeah. because they had, they accumulated vast harems, right. you know, thousands of women. So, you know, obviously every century is replete with horrors and I don't, and I do not minimize that. And I also acknowledge that um, these delusions can sweep or these vile behaviors can sweep the human minds. But the, the thing that interests me is why do we have the capacity to share these ideas in the first place? And generally speaking, the, the ability to communicate information to each other and to adopt the beliefs of another person are advantageous. Yeah. It goes back to the issue of social learning we were discussing earlier. And in a way, it's, this, is the, this is the price we pay, the downside. You know, if you wanted to insulate a young person from the beliefs that they should blow themselves and their families and innocent people up, one way you could do that is to quarantine them, right? To like isolate them from any ideas. But that's a special kind of hell too. And, and that's not how we live. We, we, we connect to each other. And, and so, you know, there are many ways in which these, these fundamental qualities that I argue are, that we have and that I argue are for good can, can, can lead to excess. So, for example, I would say pornography is to sex as social media is to friendship, as suicide bombing is to social learning, right? These are all extreme expressions of otherwise desirable qualities uh, that we have. Right. And, you know, it's, I, I, I'm not um, mitigating them or excusing them. I'm just partially explaining them and trying to provide an account for why they, they have come to, to be. Also, I, I would point out to the malicious listener, you're not equating pornography, social media, and suicide bombing at the same no. level of moral infraction. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. Thank you for yes, knowing, knowing you have more experience it, it, maybe yeah, than I do. It's, Sam, it's strange to be this defensive in front of one's audience, but <laughs> cruel experience has taught me. Yes. So, Nicholas, I'm, I'm uh, as I said, mindful of your time, and um, I would just point out to our audience that this is a massive book you've written, the interest of which we have not at all exhausted by this conversation. Do you have anything else you want to say by way of pointing people to your work well, at this point? I mean, I would just say a couple of things I would close with. One is that I see the book as a work of what I call sociodicy, and this is a very deliberate cribbing of... Uh, the, the, the problem of theodicy that theologians ha have confronted, which is how do we justify a belief in the existence of God despite the manifest evils in the world? So my, I see my book as a work of sociodicy, which is how do, we man how do we justify the existence of society despite the evils we see in the world? Despite, for example, the suicide bombing example that you just mm -hmm. gave, how can we come to see us as fundamentally good and as social and as society uh, fundamentally good. It's the vindication of our confidence in the virtue of society 
despite its numerous failures, so obvious to, to anyone. And I would argue this is not just idle optimism. In fact, I would even invoke something which I suspect you would agree with, which is a kind of Japanese philosophy and aesthetic of wabi-sabi, or a kind of flawed beauty. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Western standards of beauty often involve symmetry and perfection, but there's a branch of Japanese aesthetics that sees imperfect pots or imperfect pottery or, or, or crooked uh, bonsai trees, or any human, any one of us who's looked at a cobblestone street and seen the beauty in that, that sensibility called wabi-sabi of a flawed beauty is how I see society. I see society as, as having a flawed beauty that's magnificent, that's moving, that highlights our common humanity and a kind of universal set of principles that bind us all together. And then I, I, I would say one more thing, which is I would, um, it, which is if I might, I'll just read the last couple of paragraphs of the book, which go back to the metaphor of the, the hills on a hmm. mountain, you know, the, three, the 300 foot hill and the, six, and the 900 foot hill that are actually on a 10,000 foot plateau. And I, and, I would, and I say, there's another reason to step off the plateau and look at the mountains rather than the hills, because a key danger of viewing historical forces as more salient than evolutionary ones in explaining human society is that our species story then becomes more fragile. Giving historical forces primacy may even tempt us to give up and feel that a good social order is unnatural. But I argue the good things we see around us are part of what make us human in the first place. And I furthermore conclude with what I think is maybe a political point even, which is we should be humble in the face of temptations to engineer society in opposition to our instincts. But fortunately, we do not need to exercise any such authority in order to have a good life. And I argue the arc of our evolutionary history is long, but it bends towards goodness. Nice. Nice. Well, that's a great place to end it. Once again, Nicholas, thank you for coming on the podcast. And uh, as I said, I recommend people get the book because we barely skimmed it. Thank you so much for having me, Sam. I really, as usual, enjoyed our conversation. 